live it. We're going to live the notes. Live the notes. Yeah. What are we talking about? <laughs> the Bible. We're in... Oh, yes, the Bible. I was just going to say, we're not an axe, but we are. We are an axe. <laughs> so this is off to a great start. Yes. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to the home of professional podcasting. I'm a bit under the weather today, so we will plow through this, and I will put all of the uh, responsibilities on you. This happens to me regularly when the weather improves, and we get a nice little Did it warm thing. Well, it was sunny a minute ago, but now it's I said, See, this cloudy is my kind of weather. But it's, uh, it's very warm for the first week of March. You know, it's above freezing, and it doesn't look like we've got any below freezing coming up anytime real this quick. This winter was lame. But I gotta tell you, every time we have that change, I get hammered by... Sinus, so welcome this to This is world. my first. Welcome. I hope you enjoy your maiden voyage. Ahoy. So as we're working through the book of Acts, we have hit this place now. Can you relate sinus headaches to what we're talking about? Well, actually, the re- the reality of this is that God <laughs> is, is working through suffering. And ah. so they, the apostles here recognize their suffering as a sacred thing, that God is doing something in them. Uh, that will further the, the the cause of the gospel. And they even actually rejoice in their suffering. Paul talks about that later in Romans, that we rejoice not only in all the good things, but we rejoice in our suffering because it's bringing about in us a greater eternal glory, a greater work that God's doing. So as you are suffering through your sinus rejoice. issues today, it is building character in you. It's teaching you a perseverance that is necessary for the completeness of your discipleship. I feel like I got enough character right <laughs> And yet you still have suffering, yeah, which indicates... I do not. You do not. We still have some growth. So rest assured that the one who started this work in you will finish it, and you will be, as you are predestined in Christ to be, perfectly conformed to his image by the time you get to heaven. I've heard that so, one before. We may have talked about it once or twice. What are we talking about today? So anyway, they're, <laughs> they are... Um, in, we're in Acts chapter 5, picking up with where we left off last time. We're actually bumping back because the paragraph from verses 12 to 16 is really kind of a transition paragraph. It uh, It's sort of the culmination of what precedes it with the Ananias and Sapphira story and, and the glorious things that are happening prior to that. And then it also is the uh, sort of the opening scene, the, the, the setting um, the introduction of this next portion uh, where the apostles, uh, specifically um, Peter, and uh, Peter seems to be the spokesperson through virtually all of this first half of Acts. And as they're uh, out here preaching, then they face the persecution from the leadership who they get very uh, very reactive, very jealous, uh, and, and they have them arrested. So we see all these great things happening in 12 to 16. The apostles perform many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. All the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade, so this public gathering place near the temple. Um, No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. I think this is a really important part that is really the bridge between what we see in the Ananias and Sapphira um, account and then what we see following this. And we're going to have a major transition. So in, I don't know that everybody would agree with this particular division, but to me I see a big division here after chapter 5 going into chapter 6. When we get to chapter 6, problems arise. So we'll deal with that in a few weeks. But as we, as we see in chapter 5, there's a culmination 
We've had nothing but good stuff than Ananias and Sapphira. We have some, some sin present in the church that, that manifests its, itself in their hypocrisy. Certainly not the only sin, but it, it right. manifests itself there. And then even through that, so God purifies the church by causing them both to be immediately physically judged. So they, they die physically on the spot. And this is a, a warning shot, so to speak, for the entire church. No posers, no fakers, no hypocrisy. If you're going to belong to Christ, then you're going to belong to Christ. You can't have your eyes on the world. You can't be pretending to do one thing while you're doing another. So their sin, as we talked about before, was not that they only gave part of, of the proceeds from the They didn't the have sale. to give any of it. They didn't have to give any of it. <clears throat> their, their issue, their sin, was that they pretended to be something that they were not. Mm-hmm. Their, their eyes were on self-stuff and status and not on Christ. So God cleanses that aspect from the church. And as he does that cleansing, everybody's like, whoa, I don't want anything to do with this. So if you were halfway in, if, if you were prone to that hypocrisy, if you were uh, in some way you know, there because it made you feel good or you liked you know, the inspiration you got from seeing all this, the people that were there just to get something, it no longer was as appealing. So there's a purging that takes place. That's still taking place as we look at 12 to 16. In fact, it only increases throughout chapter 5. So the good things are happening. Uh, verse 13, no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. So everybody sees the church doing good things. And, and that's kind of one of the things that, that Jesus says over and over, that Paul says over and over, that Peter says, that James says. As people see you, and they see this reflection of Christ in you, then the fact that you love God more than anything else with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that shows up in the fact that you love others just as much as you love yourself. So you're, you're, you're looking at other people as if it's your own needs. You're, you're, you're focusing on expressing your love for Christ through your love of others. That builds the reputation of the church. And, and people look at, at the Christians and say, wow, these are these are great loving people. Look at the the you know, the integrity that they have, look at the, uh, the way they, they look at the scriptures with authority and, and a consistency. The behavior is, is consistently uh, honorable, and yet they were still afraid to be a part of it. So then the persecution increases. As that increases through chapter 5, more and more people don't want anything to do with it. I ain't going to jail for you or anybody, right? So we're going to run away from all of that. And yet in verse 14, we see, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. So there are two parts of that. First, they believe in the Lord, and then they're added to their number. So believing in the Lord is the key. Mm-hmm. Once I really believe and I get, I grasp the reality of who Christ is, then the rest of the stuff is of small consequence. Okay, so we got to go to jail. Okay, so there's a, a risk of divine judgment or whatever else. I'm judged anyway. I am dead in my sin, and my only hope is Christ. And when I get that, the rest doesn't matter. Well, wait a minute. So I don't feel good that maybe the preacher offends me and steps on my toes. It doesn't matter because truth matters and I'm going to cling to this. So those folks who grasp the reality of Christ are then added to their number. That means they're added to the church. They now belong to the family of believers. Uh, we would see that today really as membership in the local church, but, but they're added to the visible church as opposed to being scattered among everyone. So because they believe, now they're no longer afraid to be identified with it. It, it sort of uh, 
reminds one of what Paul says in Romans 10, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you'll be saved. That There are two parts. It's the believing, but also the, the public uh, acknowledgement that I belong to him. Here's what I know to be true. And because I know it to be true, I'm not afraid to talk about it. I'm not afraid to be identified with the church. That was the purpose of baptism, was this public affirmation that, yes, I belong to Christ and to his body. We're one, and I'm united here. I'm not hiding from anybody. So that's starting to take place. They're still growing, even though, and and this is just what Jesus does throughout the Gospels, the bigger the crowds get, the more offensive he gets. He'll say some crazy thing, like, what? What church growth experts are like scratching their heads, like, what's going on? Why would you do this? And he'll, you know, scare the crowds away. You know, if you if you really want to follow me, you've got to hate your mother and father and sister and brother. If you really want to follow me, you need to sell everything and give it to the poor. And so he would speak in these sort of exaggerated ways to make his point. And really what it does is, I think I used this term Sunday and it's pretty crass, but I'm going to say it anyway because I just came from the farm. But it kind of thins the herd. You're, you're calling out those who are pretenders, those who are not, they're not really grasping the fact that this is about Christ. They're still here to get something from it. They're here so that they can be blessed and inspired and have their best life now and all that kind of stuff. And they don't want to hear things that aren't right. on board with that. Absolutely. This is about my perceived needs. And God says, this isn't about your perceived needs. This like, is about your real needs. And they're like, all right, peace. Right. I'm, I'm deucing. So as we, as we see all of this coming together here, the church is being purified and pur- purged and cleansed. And at the same time as all of that, it's being built. God mm-hmm. is growing his church. So in, in 17 and following, uh, we see the, this harsh, rash... Uh, knee-jerk reaction of the leadership. It says, Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, they held the the priesthood at this time, uh, they were filled with jealousy. So the Sadducees tended to be more of the... the, um, a little more secular in their... You know, they were very focused on uh, on the religious trappings, uh, but they were... um, much more secularized or secularizing, to use a, a more contemporary term, than what the Pharisees were. The Pharisees were very focused on devout religious practice. Um, they were, the Pharisees, contrary to what, how we might see them today, were more the, the religious leaders of the people. The Sadducees were more of the intellectual elite types. Uh, and so the Pharisees were involved in the the larger group of the Sanhedrin, but not so much in the priesthood here. The, the Sadducees are controlling that. Anyway, they, uh, they're they filled with jealousy in verse 17. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. And the angel says to them in verse 20 then, go stand in the temple courts and tell the people the full message of this new life. So they're, they're delivered. They have this divine deliverance from an angel but it's not just so that they can go and, and do whatever. We're going to take your suffering away. This is never, and this is a really important thing for us to grasp in our own discipleship, we just don't see God deliver us from suffering simply for the sake of delivering us from suffering. God is not <clears throat> primarily concerned with our happiness. And that's but, something that gets said a lot, that God wants me to be happy. Or God and it's not that happy. God doesn't want you to right. be happy. That's just not his primary concern. Right. Just like as a parent... I want my children to be happy. 
But I am a terrible parent if that's my main concern for my children. Because there are a lot of things that could make them happy, at least for a moment, that aren't good for them. Well, and, <laughs> and, and that's the reality of, of divorced life. Right. And we see this over and over again, that the majority of families, when this happens, both parents compete to be the nice parent. You know, who's right. who, you know, I don't want to be the bad parent, so I'm not going to lay down rules. I want my kids to be happy. I want my kids to be happy. Well, the good cop, bad cop. It, it really, it's such garbage and so destructive, but it's such an easy and obvious temptation. I mean, mm-hmm. you can, you know, you can relate to this pretty quickly and easily to recognize that if my child is torn between two homes, and I'm, you know, I'm going to be viewed from them based on what I do. Well, man, I don't, I don't want to offend them. I don't want to lose my kid. That's the same thing that happens in churches. Well, you know, if we if we speak harshly about whatever social issue we're talking about, if we're talking about human sexuality or or anything that could know, offend somebody, really anything, especially once it becomes a political issue, right. then oh my goodness, we can't say anything that would be offensive. Well, when we do that, the motivation is more often than not, people will say a lot of different things, but it's generally speaking, we don't want to lose people. We want to keep uh, keep our attendance. We want to keep people coming. And in fact, I just heard it. Uh, I don't know the name of the guy because I don't follow uh, the Anglican Church that closely, but it was an article uh, quoting an Anglican uh, bishop or archbishop talking about how we have to, uh, we have to work to keep the attendance up. We're, we're going to lose people from. Uh, we're going to lose people from the um, from attending our churches, mm-hmm. and so we have to allow these things that we we really don't like. We we don't believe it's a good thing, but we need to make church more exciting. They they have an Anglican church, which is, this is a high church kind of setting. You're you're not talking about like some celebrity church in Hollywood, right. but they have an. an, an an old cathedral that has like a, a, a you know a, a theme park slide kind of you go in here and you can tour the cathedral and you have all you know you're coming down the uh, the tube slide kind of thing. No, uh, and I'm like this is insane. Really? It, Are you being serious? No, it's actually yeah they, they sell tickets to it and stuff. Um, so it's like an, an event that helps then support the church and then they still have their church services. I don't know how it all works, but you know it, it's kind of mind blowing. But that mentality is pervasive. So when we say, well, you know, the Bible doesn't really mean what it says here, the same mentality is there. We don't want to be the mean parent. We want to be the nice parent. We don't want our kids to leave us. Well, that's exactly the opposite of how church growth is handled in the scriptures. Hmm. And, and that's kind of the point of this passage. The, the, the core reality that we see here is found in, in the wisdom that Rabbi Gamaliel, who is unconverted, he's, he's not a Christian. Right. This is a Pharisee. Um, a, a Jewish rabbi who is not convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. I, I hope and pray that, that maybe before he died, he was. I don't know enough about that side of him to, to have any insight to that. But The fact that you used a Yoda picture yeah. on your for the uh, program image on Sunday, I didn't know. Because usually you're like, oh, what should I use for a picture when you tell me the title so I can put it up for the podcast, and you didn't this week. And I saw Yoda up there. I was like, oh, that's what he went with. <laughs> Well, that's probably because usually you're like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Do whatever you want. Let me think about that. Uh, And then I never say anything. Right. But anyway, uh, so, yeah, well, I thought Yoda was a pretty good picture. I really had a pretty hard struggle with it. I thought Yoda was a pretty good picture because there's nothing actually biblical about the the worldview of Star Wars. There are some good hero themes and and so on. Uh, And so, you know, people will... 
I remember youth pastors quoting Yoda a lot. I quote Yoda a lot, especially the do or do not, there is no try. But the the idea that the force is somehow like the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. garbage, heresy, junk, get that out of your mind. The idea that, that Yoda is some great you know mentor for Christians, no. But even unconverted, unsaved people have wisdom that, that, that they have as derivative of the divine image in us. Not baby Yoda. I have not seen the Mandalorian yet. So um, wisdom comes with age. (laughs) And anyhow, as we see Gamaliel uh, with his perspective saying, look, don't, don't freak out about this. If it's of human origin, it's going to fail anyway. And if it's of, if it's of divine origin, then you're going to fail in trying to stop it. So, that's really kind of the, the the hinge point for this whole story. There, we've got the miracles, we've got the arrest, we've got the angels. And when we tell Bible stories about such things, we tend to focus on the angels getting them out of jail. Oh, that's a miraculous thing. And it is. But as Luke records it, that's almost like a passing thought. Yeah, so they preach and they get arrested and the angel gets them out. But what does the angel tell them to do? Go back and preach. Right. So anyway, Gamaliel um, says... You know, just leave them alone. God will handle this. That's wisdom. And so as we as we see how this whole story plays out, the, the core reality is that nothing can get in the way of what God's doing, right? It's impossible to impede what God has planned for his people. So God has a plan for his church. He has a plan just as he has always had a plan for Israel. That plan is not completed. He'll finish that in in the day of Christ Jesus. And that plan culminates in Christ. Israel culminates in Christ. The church is an extension of this, that we're not Israel, but we are God's people, and we're an extension of what God was always doing in Israel as well. So as God is, is carrying forth his plans, how often throughout human history, the answer is always, have we seen forces of this world try to stamp out the Jewish nation try to stamp out Christianity, try to stamp out the truth even within as the church became corrupted and apostate. How, how often did we see uh, the forces of darkness trying to stamp out the word or, or those who are willing to submit to the word? The answer, again, is always. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing that same thing now. And it is happening from within. The, the greatest threat to the church is not from outside. It's not ISIS. It's not the persecution. In fact, that is, is like kicking a mushroom and sending the spores scattering. That's that's what ends up happening is it furthers the growth of the church when we are persecuted. The same way we see it here, it's a purging of the fake, it's a, a, a promotion of the real, and the, the real threat comes from within Christendom. When we have churches words <laughs> that are uh, purporting to be representing the Lord, and yet rejecting his word and putting forth a different gospel. We're going to say we're promoting the gospel, but it's a different gospel in this gospel of self-help, of being good enough and smart enough, and the gospel of self-esteem and positive thinking, the gospel of your best life now and God wants me happy. All of these things are a different gospel than what the Bible reveals to us. And Paul says, man, even if an angel comes and tells you this, even if I myself were to come and tell you anything different than this gospel, throw that out. That is garbage. Only the gospel that has been revealed and passed on is legitimate. 
But because these things are becoming, I think today especially, they're becoming exceptionally popular, and it's it's wrong. I mean, and people are following this in droves and hearing great, you know, happy things yeah. and, and nice, pleasant things, and life is, you know, peaches and roses, but... I guess the bottom line is, you know, if these people are being led to believe those things, the only thing you can do to get away from that is to take it upon yourself to actually learn the word yourself. Then, yes, correct? and stand for truth. Right. And, and that's what we're seeing here in, in Acts 5 is the truth is being promoted. Those who represent religiousness in the name of God but not actually doing God's will they have this rash reaction to it. They're they're not interested in it. They're going to fight against it. But God does what he's doing all the time. And we see that even in the angels delivering them. We have this divine deliverance because God's plan will be carried out. It won't be won't be thwarted. It won't be changed. And even, even an outsider, so to speak, an unconverted person like Gamaliel brings these wise words to say, look, if this is from God, do you really want to fight against God? That's not going to work. It's never worked for anybody. And and he knows the scripture, so he's drawing from that, that no plan of God can be thwarted. You know, the, 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 the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart throughout all generations. So that's the wisdom that, that he's drawing on. And so they he convinces them, they turn them out, and they see then this suffering as a sacred thing, as, as a divine appointment. So they count themselves uh, in, what, what verse is it, 30-ish, 40? There we go. Uh, his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. So this is how you get off in, in this setting. We're going to let you go by beating you 39 right. times. Um, then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. They just got flogged. Rejoicing, not because they got away. It doesn't say they rejoiced because they let them go. It says they're rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. We don't tend to see things that way, do no, we? You know, no. and that's you know, you can hear Paul saying we rejoice even in our suffering. You can hear James saying, count it all joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, uh, because it develops in you perseverance. We have a message in America today, mm-hmm. and, and we've exported it around the world in the, the prosperity gospel that God blesses you and shows you his pleasure that that he favors you by giving you what you want. Right. But that's not the picture that we have in scripture. In fact, every person in scripture, every single one. I cannot I, I don't say that very often. I cannot think of a single exception. Every single one including Christ himself that God truly blesses and favors suffers mm. always. That's, that's the nature of it as God is developing us in a fallen world. In fact, it's often those that seem to have everything and whatever that are, are treated the opposite. Right. Not saying that, you know, to have yeah. things or wealth, be wealthy or whatever is a bad thing, but people who tend to have easier lives on the surface. Right. No, and that's a really key point because Jesus does not condemn wealth. Right. So we, we have this pendulum, and the devil loves to keep us on the pendulum going from one side to the other, one extreme to the other extreme. So... On the one hand, we have folks who will, you know, claim that you know if you're going to honor God, that if, when God blesses you, if you're getting this right, if you have faith, you won't have any sickness, you won't have any emotional distress, you won't have any fear or anxiety. You'll, your 
financial problems will be taken care of and so on and so forth. Well, that's hogwash and very easily dismissed as you look at any part of the scripture. It, you really have to work hard to be able to avoid finding finding the the gospel of suffering in scripture. That doesn't mean that the opposite extreme is true. Jesus does not condemn wealth. In fact, God gives us the book of Proverbs largely focusing on how to handle and amass wealth and and specifically how to handle and amass wealth in a way that is wise and honors God. So those who handle wealth dishonorably are condemned by by the Old Testament, by the New Testament. Those who rely on their wealth as their strength are condemned by Christ. You know, the, this is a, a constant theme. But Jesus never says that poor people are better people. Right. Greedy people are bad whether you have it or don't have it. That, that's just how it works. If you're setting your hope on anything that isn't Christ, my career, my retirement account, you know, feeling happy, having just the right relationship, having to be in a relationship, all of these things that, that we focus on in, in this horizontal element. We, you know, we're, we're looking around us at this life now, and this is our focus. When we're doing that, it doesn't matter what we're doing, we're missing the mark. Mm-hmm. We're, we're missing the focus that lasts, that matters, and we're displeasing him. Because this is just a blip, this life. Right. I mean, if you're lucky, you get you know 100 years or whatever, and it's hard because we have nothing to compare that to, but that seems like, quote-unquote, right. a lifetime. It's natural. You know. But in Christ, we're supernatural. Right. So we're called to something beyond that. And as we're, as we're seeing this play out in the Scripture, they, they face the persecution, they have the arrest, God gets them out, but he doesn't get them out and say, okay, you're free, you're done, no more suffering. Mm-hmm. He gets them out and puts them right back in the fray. I want you to go back to this public place at the temple where everybody's there, where you are, are, are seen and heard and, and everybody's aware of it. They get the whole Sanhedrin, not just the, the priests and the guard, but the whole Sanhedrin, over 100 people. They're all gathered here to deal with the problem of these Jesus people. But we don't have any prisoners. What's the deal? The jail's still locked. The jailer's still there. What's going on? Hey, uh, we heard they're out in the temple doing exactly what you told them not to do. And the crowds are gathering. So they send the temple guard out there. But they don't take them by force because they've seen enough now to recognize the, the, the populace uh, movement here as the people are, are gathering around. And so we're going to have a riot. People are going to stone them. They're gonna be, there's going to be this big upheaval. So... These guys that we arrested that broke out of jail, let's go ask them nicely and see if they'll come back with us. And of course they do because that's what Christ's followers do. We we submit to authority. So they don't run away from it. They they're not arresting them by force. They're, they're they're bringing them back without force. And Peter and the apostles are like, "Yeah, okay." So then they get in front of the the accusers, they get in front of those who have earthly power over them. Mm-hmm. And they double down on it. Why do you keep trying to make us guilty of this man's blood? And he's like, because you killed him. This is you. But it's not just you, because he previously had said, this is all of us in our sin. This is, you know, yes, it's you you Jews and you Gentiles and you leaders and you townspeople. Everybody betraying Christ, we're all in this. 
But now, since they're trying to get out of it and justify themselves, he's got the finger in the chest saying, right. you need to understand you killed Christ. God raised him up. But he's been preaching repentance. So now before them, he actually goes to preaching judgment. Because if we don't get the repentance, if we don't come gently, then the, the judgment has to be emphasized so that we can see that. Gamaliel has his wisdom, turns them loose, they rejoice. And what does it say happens after they rejoice? Because they see this as a, as a sacred suffering, verse 42 says, day after day, in the temple courts, in the formal gatherings, and from house to house, in their everyday relationships, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. So through this persecution, they're actually emboldened. Mm -hmm. it, it, it bolsters their boldness. It, it creates this resolute idea. It, it intensifies their intentionality as they're just being aware of the reality of Christ in every moment. So if we're hanging out, going house to house, and we're you know having pizza, playing Monopoly, we're, Jesus is our focus. If we're gathered and we got a group of people, hey, let's tell them about Jesus. This is what we want to do. This is what matters more than anything else. So their boldness and their intentionality are increased because of the suffering that they've gone through. So what Gamaliel said is proven to be prophetic in that just as has always happened, the persecution actually the persecutors are unknowingly promoting God's agenda. This suffering helps to cleanse and purify the church under the Holy Spirit's, Spirit's guidance. He allows what is intended for evil to bring about a good purpose, and God will finish that out. And so ultimately, we see even today, this has happened throughout history. History is linear, but it's kind of like a rolling wheel. It's not like a hamster wheel. You know, we come, sometimes we'll see history as a cyclical thing. And it is. it does have cycles, but it's more like a rolling wheel where it's traveling in a direction. But as it does this, we keep repeating the same mistakes. We keep doing the same things. We can see that through Israel's history. God is moving from Genesis to Revelation. He's moving from the creation, uh, from the fall, through this period of redemption, and grace that, that's been offered to us to the point of consummation that is coming in, in the future. But in the process, we do see history repeat itself over and over again. We make the same mistakes that Israel make. We see the same processes take place in throughout church history that we see here. So the church grows with this great excitement. It becomes fat and hypocritical and lazy, and then persecution purges it, and, and God keeps on doing that until it, we see that uh, sort of a thing in a much bigger wheel at this point just because of the impact globally uh, in the Great Reformation. And then it had to ha happen multiple times since then mm -hmm. as the Great Reformation then also led to the same sort of complacency eventually. When it, whenever we see uh, the church become merged with the culture, mm -hmm. then Christianity becomes complacent and, if I can say, impure. But God brings it back generally through suffering, and, and he purges his people. We'll stop there for today. Uh, thank you guys for listening. We'll continue in Acts next time. As always, if you have any uh, questions or comments for us, feel free to uh, email somethingreal at reallifeonline.org or uh, leave us a message on our Facebook page. We are streaming also on Instagram and YouTube uh, during the live streams now, so if you want to catch it there, and Facebook as always, if you want to catch it there, um, you can do that. We try to do 
We try to do 10 o'clock on Tuesdays, but that's our goal. Doesn't always work, but we'll get Somewhere there. Somewhere in that 10, Somewhere 10 30 10, window. Yeah, maybe 11. <laughs> All right. Thank you guys for listening.